From Chagdagumpa Riggs and Lane, this is Listen, Contemplate, Meditate, a podcast featuring a range of teachings from the Buddhist tradition presented by Lamas of Chagdagumpa Foundation. Our website is chagdagumpa.org. One difficulty I think about that idea is uh, it's I don't exactly know if we're all thinking the same about probably we're thinking the same about suffering and happiness but about the spiritual path I can't be sure uh, what what we all mean by that. I'm sort of stuck, I'm not stuck, uh, I'm stuck with uh, Buddhism, and Buddha, Buddha, teachings of Buddha. It's like been uh, conditioned or brainwashed by my background in the Buddhism, which uh, is mostly my uh, background. Like, Yes, like a good American boy, I, I dabbled in things, but then just through circumstances landed with the Buddhism. And then, uh, so, uh, to me, that's, that has to do with the spiritual path. So you, you'll have to uh, uh, indulge me on that. In Buddhism, the spiritual path uh, has to do with Relating a spiritual path, I think if you look at the whole of the teachings of Buddha, then if you have to, if you have to use the term spiritual path, then it means a path that involves working with the basis of our experience, which is in Buddhism the mind. So. Uh, spiritual path then is almost a, a synonym for working with your mind, not anybody else's mind. Uh, well, you're here, and I'm here, and I've got the. I'm up here. So in some sense, I'm working with your mind, aren't I? I shouldn't uh, avoid that. Uh, but in Buddhism, uh, if we take our, 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 our physical presence, our kind of energetic and verbal communicative presence, and then our sort of hidden kind of emotional uh, Concept, concepts of thinking, converse, in, like invisible conversations and things we have. Uh, these three, three aspects of, of our uh, being. Uh, and uh, we put the greatest emphasis on the mind. The body and the speech, that whole world of, of uh, kind of 
what falls halfway between uh, our mind and our body, you know, so that's semi-invisible, you know, our communication level, energy, uh, uh, that, uh, that those is a physical and a, and a verbal or, or sound are considered to be Slaves, if I can overstate it, maybe. But the mind is the ruler over our body and our speech. There's that one expression. Uh, whatever we do, like behavior, behaviorally, our physical actions, and whatever we say verbally, our mind already got there first. Our mind already did it. Our mind already said it. So the more we become aware of, of the originator of our behavior and our speech, uh, the more, uh, I want to say freedom, the more, uh, more precise and clear our action and our communicative abilities are. Okay? Mind. Sometimes then also, again, I don't know how you're going, but we have a spiritual path on the one hand, and then a little funny happiness, but, but let's leave that aside, but think in terms of suffering, as uh, suffering, meaning uh, just ordinary, uh, you know, uh, cuts and bruises and fevers and sickness and, and uh, anxiety, loss, separation, uh, all the things that are irritating. seem to uh, pull us off of the spiritual path. And we're no longer, if we're working with our mind, then stuff comes up, we stub our toe, or somebody left something on the wrong side of the sink or something, or something happens and we, you know, then suddenly we have, we, we uh, fall off the spiritual path and we uh, react in a, in a way that, uh, however we react, uh, we forget what we're doing. And then have, uh, after a certain amount of time, uh, we and then have regret or something other uh, something like that if we're even at all uh, uh, reflective if we reflect back occasionally or we feel feel things about what we've done so I can see that there's a there is a a hope 
that we can lessen, that we could grow the spiritual path and lessen the, the arising of, of suffering. Right? Is that clear? Half of my mind is making turns on this road (laughs) (laughs) and thinking about the smoke and then maybe the other half is here and another half, a third half, (laughs) I don't know. I'll catch up, hopefully. The happiness sometimes, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but uh, on the spiritual path, happiness doesn't seem to bother us so much. Yeah? We somehow assume or we, we fold in that, that when we're happy, that our spiritual path is working. And that's why I say, I'm not sure what we all mean by spiritual path. It's a title like happiness and suffering on the spiritual path. There's some message, there's some message there that, well, the spiritual path is one thing, and then there's being happy, and then there's being unhappy. I don't know if you read into it that much, but... (laughs) So that's interesting, because usually we would think, well, I, I'm, I'm going to, uh, again, you know, everyone in the United States, it's the United States, we say, or America, uh, American culture is a little, uh, little uh, I'm not going to run it down, uh, but it's, it's, uh, there's a, a freedom of uh, fragmentation. Everything is fragmented. You know. We have two, almost said too many, but we have full choice, in a sense. You know. uh, and so we, we leave one thing behind and then start choosing. And then we choose that, and then we're free to leave that behind and choose something else. Um, So specifically, I would like I would nail it down if I could to the Buddhist sense of spiritual path. See, a path implies that that it that it's going somewhere. I mean, you could call uh, well, we made up the word path, but you could also. I guess if you said something like, uh, like sp- uh, spiritual lifestyle choice, I never heard, you know, but we could do that. And then you, uh, there's not any sense of going anywhere or doing anything. It's just sort of the existential decision-making playing out according to your higher your higher, higher uh, ideals, which seem to 
come and go, depending on our emotional life. I have to go back to Buddhism again. Uh, Buddhism. Is that okay? Uh, the path implies there's a, a starting point. Like you are, you take a step onto a path, say. And the implication is that it leads somewhere. There's a goal. And a lot of, a lot of, if you looked at, and I haven't, but if you look at the full range of the Buddha's teachings, then some of the advice and and, uh, advice that, uh, that the Buddha gave or that are in the Buddha's teachings have to do with how to, uh, uh, step on how to begin, how to get onto the path. In other words, the teachings that talk about where we're at, just uh, stark, where we're at, like a human being born, you know, basic, basic uh, reminders so that we have a clear a vivid experience of what we have to work with. And then there's a whole body of teachings to do with the, with the process, the path. And then there's teachings that uh, explain or, or discuss the goal. Some teachings that discuss the goal talk about how there is no goal. Quite extensive, uh, quite profound language of how there is no goal. And other teachings of the same teacher discuss how the goal manifests. And similarly, this is with the path, many, many details, step-by-step, step-by-step approach of the path. And some teachings teach how, well, there is no path. It's quite strange in that sense. The the idea behind that is that there's uh, there's a view to keep in mind at the outset. And that a view is based on uh, what we could call maybe like relative relative truth 
kind of Einsteinian uh, idea of uh, relative truth, that things are relative to, to each other. In Buddhism, they use the term interconnectedness, interdependent. Everything is interconnected. Everything, everything depends on something else. And to put another, to lengthen that sentence, we, we say everything depends on something else for its existence. So everything is this, you could say like a net, a net. Everything is is connected, everything is interdependent. I'm sitting on this chair, the chair is sitting on the floor, the floor is sitting on the slab, the slab is sitting on the ground, and so forth. And And the ground is on this thin skin, floating through space. Scary. (laughs) (coughs) Gravitational stuff happening. Somebody moves out there, some planet, something shifts or something, and then, and we go, you know, earthquakes come, little, little, eight feet of, eight feet of a plate moving or something, and the whole world changes practically. It's interesting. It's small little movements, huge effects. So it's all, everything is interdependent, not just on our planet Earth. The Earth interdependent with the planets, stars, sun, everything. Day, night, change of temperature, everything determines our experience. That's why in one of the core views or visions of Buddhism is non-self. Non-self. Everything is interdependent. Nothing is independent. If something was independent, you could maybe call it a self, an existent. Like this cup exists independently of anything else but itself. But through analysis, just, just intelligent looking at something, to find out if it's independent of anything else, we can see that it's not independent of anything else. It's just a manufactured item from other things. And at some point, it will change to other things. So there's no abiding, eternal cup. No self-nature to that object. But yet it appears so there's these two, there's this, the play of these two, two almost, I don't want to over 
spook it or state it, but you know, there's two like realities, or there may be truths. There's the truth that, yeah, there's the cup. I know there's the cup because it's got an inside and outside. You pour liquid in it and you can drink it. It has a function. And we gave it a label, cup. So it exists. It's, it exists, it truly exists relatively. Relative to various things, to its material, to its function. Like I'm sitting on this chair, so it exists as a chair. If I drag it over there and stand on it to fix something in the corner, then it's not a chair anymore, it's like a stool. It changes its function. So it changes the label. It's like a... Don't have time. No time for all these examples. That's the idea, is a relative... A relative truth. Things truly it would be foolish to say, "Oh, that cup. There's no such thing as that cup." You'd be denying. You would be denying your perception. And so, in Buddhism, that would be called uh, being a uh, having a. I would say. You'd be a, like a, having a, you'd be a fanatic, a fanatic negator. You'd be a, what do you call it? A nihilist. Nihilist is that things don't exist. And or can you go the other way and say that that cup actually exists independently and? uniquely and in perpetuity. So the Buddhist view of how, to, how, how we relate to our experience is that it's neither uh, that things neither truly exist nor do they not exist. It's called the middle, that's why in Buddhism you hear this term, the middle way. The middle way means free of extreme, extreme ideas about things. And one extreme idea is that things don't exist, and the other extreme idea is that things do exist. And also, it's not the case that things both exist and don't exist. Nor do things neither exist nor not nor exist. So there's these four... I'm sorry, I, I have to get this out. <laughs> I'll be thorough. Anyway, the idea of, of, of the path, okay, we're, we're still talking about a path, is that a path, we need a path in order to come to an understanding of what we don't understand. 
and why we don't understand. Okay, what do we want to understand is in Buddhism we want to understand uh, non-self. In Buddhism we have to say that. Part of the approach. Yet, we definitely have self-ego, okay? Maybe we psychological language maybe is more familiar, like ego. We have an ego because we have a... mm, Well, look at us. You know, everybody's dressed in their own thing, you know. You made decisions on what you're going to wear, you know, based on your relationship to yourself. I I feel good wearing this, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to do the other thing. This expresses me, this (coughs) whatever, you know. This looks good against my skin color, this is this, you know, all these Basically, uh, it's one of uh, many, many agendas we have that reinforce our self-identity. And the best thing, oh, I'll say best thing, okay, forget the whole thing, that self-identity, yeah. I have to wear this. My teacher said, oh, when you're teaching or listening to Dharma, then you have to wear like Dharma. Dharma means uh, Buddhist Dharma, means religious. You have to wear these religious clothes. So there's some, I can't, I'm not very, I don't know what to wear usually anyway. I have a wife, beautiful, wonderful, <laughs> lifelong friend that helps me, buys but uh, you know, I do. Ha- I could have my way with myself and wear what I want. To. <laughs> uh, so to have to wear this then kind of erodes my agenda of what I, how I want to say project. And in the Buddhist tradition, there's monks and nuns, which I am neither. And then you take vows and you wear these, you wear, you cut your hair. Like, wouldn't that be, I don't know, maybe it wouldn't be so great for some of you, but that eliminates a whole hair thing, which is huge, absolutely huge, I'm sure. Uh, And how freeing that is. And, you know, clothes, no choice at all. You don't even think about it. You just wear the same stuff every day. So you've eliminated that piece. And there's many. I mean, for monks, there's 256 rules that have to do pretty much with how you look. Mm 
how you behave in the eyes of others. And it protects you uh, from becoming mindless. All because the truth is non-self. It's not that you have an ego, that you have a self that exists in some uh, truly abiding way, and that the path of Buddhism is to destroy that, so that you're left with something other, other. That's not, that doesn't turn out to be the case. That's not the intention of Buddhism, and that's not the view of Buddhism. Buddhism says that if you look right from the very beginning, there's no self. There's no self to discover. There's no self to uh, conquer or destroy. There's no self, what do they say, primordially. Before, there's never been a self. The goal of the path is to realize that truth, that uh, abiding truth. That's the freedom implied by the path. That's the result of the path, is the wisdom of of non-self, the wisdom of realizing non-self and making that wisdom, that knowledge, your ongoing uh, way of being. Basically, we could say, uh, realizing uh, the truth of our true nature, which is free of the limitations that a self brings with it, an ego brings with it, Realizing the the original absence of that self-identity and then getting used to it, getting used to knowing that. That's why on the spiritual path, getting used to non-self is challenged by becoming irritated. Suddenly, our lifelong habit of me, I, me, mine comes up. Or happiness, like we can talk about happiness too. Uh, Our happiness comes and we completely become like uh, a goner. We forget to maintain the continuity of selflessness as being our nature. And we indulge, basically we consume the experience of happiness. We forget about anything except being happy, and uh, 
We all like happiness as well as the next person, you know. And the Buddhism doesn't have anything against being happy. It doesn't also have anything against suffering, except when it occurs to other people or other beings. For a practitioner, a practitioner of spiritual practitioner can take a lot of suffering because you're always kind of like working with it. Like you get angry. Then you, anger is painful. It's painful to me, it's painful to who or what I'm angry at. And so I need to deal with it. I need to get over it. It's like a, uh, I'm being defiled by it. You know, it's contaminating my life. So we need to become free of it. When we're happy, we don't think that way. Oh, I'm happy. Like, what am I going to do about this? You know, how am I going to deal with being happy? <laughs> so that's why I said in Buddhism, I said, uh, this one great uh, yogi, he said, uh, you know, practitioners can take a lot of suffering, but they can't take much happiness. Means distraction. What's distracting you from your path of wisdom and compassion? What's distracting you from that? If you're in a lot of pain, that's distracting you. You can't, you cannot appreciate the subtlety of a spiritual path when you're in extraordinary pain. And if you have extraordinary uh, luxury and happiness, which don't go together, so don't, don't worry, I, I understand that. You know. But if you have luxury and happiness, it's a good combination, uh, then also uh, you, you wouldn't be able to even, like why would you even be interested in the subtleties of the spiritual path? From your point of view, you've made it. So, you know. So being somewhere in the middle there, just free enough of suffering to be able to work with your own and have the empathy and sensitivity to understand that how others are feeling when they're suffering. And having enough happiness and and luxury, uh, and by luxury I mean I mean probably I mean maybe contentment, contentment. Which is one of the it's kind of a prerequisite almost for spiritual practice contentment, meaning this is good enough. This is good enough for me to be able to engage in my spiritual path. I don't need need so much more than what I've got. Time, energy, facilities, say, uh, resources, like food. I've got enough. And that's going to vary from person to person. Some great you know, meditators, they have one 
one handful of corn flour a day, they're content. Some people, they need, you know, three cliff bars a day, and they can, that's enough. <laughs> they don't need to strive for more than that, you know. This water, this tap water, whatever, each person. But contentment is a kind of a key point. But then you can begin, oh, a little bit of suffering. Okay, how am I going to deal with this? And now I said that, that was wrong. I said, how am I going to bring this onto my path? It's not about dealing. I, that, forget I said that. We don't deal. We use and bring things onto the spiritual path. If I had a lot of time, and we had you know an opportunity to spend more you know practice and and uh, more dialoguing together and so forth, uh, then we could go and and uh, go through a whole sort of series of exercises and practice that would enable us to be able to use circumstances uh, that are uncomfortable, suffering, you know, outright horrible, uh, ac- uh, according to different uh, capacities we have. And the same with happiness. So that it's not it's not the case that uh, at least in Buddhism, uh, what um, what this what this uh, teaching would encompass is not so much how to get over suffering. Matter of fact, you know, in a spiritual path. I would emphasize that, well, it's not about getting over suffering at all. It's about using suffering. And once you begin to be able to appreciate how to use suffering to magnify or intensify or solidify or or propel your spiritual path, uh, then suffering becomes like an ornament. We say because of impermanence and karma, you know, karma, karma, uh, karma means, uh, that's something also, so I think, I don't know if it's even in the dictionary, but many people have different ideas, karma. But in Buddhism, karma means that uh, everything has a cause. Everything has a cause. So when happiness, you have happiness comes, it has a cause. And when suffering, a sadness, disappointment, separation, loss comes, that has a cause. And it's not, it's not, uh, 
like a suffering is not like some permanent thing, not permanent thing exactly, but like what what you might suffer, like that suffering doesn't have some absolute value. Bear me out, I'm trying to get something across here. In other words, uh, someone else wouldn't suffer if the same thing happened to them. So your suffering isn't some universal principle that something made happen to you. Is that at all clear? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Somebody might wear out their shoes. Oh, they're suffering. Somebody, and it's oh, now I don't have to bother about shoes anymore. I just go barefoot. I don't have to. I don't have to deal with the shoes. You know where are they? And is on the right foot? And you know, mm-hmm. they're very complicated shoes. <laughs> so I don't. I lost my shoe now. Okay, so then I don't. Uh, good, good. I'm happy. Somebody else, they want a slight little scuff, and like oh, panic. You know, they have to get that or. You know, like I, I go into prisons, you know, a lot of, when I live in I live in Seattle half time and half time sometimes I come from Seattle and I go prisons and there like because everybody wears the same thing just like this you know that's a different connotation but not, it doesn't have to you know but what what the, really they have there is a shoes sneakers white sneakers. All the different brands. I don't know, I might even embarrass myself by trying to remember all the different, you know, status and identity comes down to what white shoes you wear, because otherwise it's, everybody's the same. You, somebody's shoes get so messed up, you don't want to, that, you don't want anything to do with that person. It's like that first scratch on a new car or something, you know, like, Wow. Somebody doesn't show up our meetings. They go, how come somebody doesn't show up? Oh, somebody stepped on his shoe, man. He got a, went into a rage. He got a, you know, a ticket to go to isolation. You, know, you don't step on somebody's shoes. And, you know, that, you know, compared to, oh, no, I don't have to worry about shoes anymore. I'll just go barefoot. So that uh, loss of shoes or those kind of infractions on shoes is not absolute. People are going to have different reactions. So then, because of what? Because of interdependence. Everything is interdependent. Your mind is just one of the things that are interdependently connected. Your mind and your mind set. You know, your set of minds. It's almost like you have minds. You, know, you had the mind you had at whatever time you woke up this morning, that was a mind. Then you realized something about today, and then that mind began. And then you needed a drink, a, you know, a coffee or tea. That mind kicked in. Then you made it. That mind kicked in. Then you felt fine. That mind kicked in. Then you had to do this. Then you had all our minds. We have many minds almost. Arising, 
duration and falling away. Remember, there's no self. There's no abiding. Everything is interdependent. We crave. I, you know, if I can, my, if I can say you know, my, we we crave a basis. I need to get to the basis. You know, I need. What do we say? Uh, uh, I have to get grounded. You know, my mind is all over the board. You know, I'm just kind of I'm coming apart up on top here. I need to get grounded. That may be true, you know, and I'm sure it is. But we can't assume that there is actually some ground. That would border on reinforcing this idea that there is some self-identity that is fundamental to my being. Like if there was, like a, what do you say, uh, attendance? I had all your names, I'd call out your name, and something would, your, that mind's, that, the mind of that name would go, you know. I'm here. Uh, you point to our body. That name is extra to you. That name, somebody else's idea. Maybe, maybe, maybe you uh, created your own name. I didn't. I didn't create it. But my name is not my name. I mean, Lama Pema. What kind of a name is that? <laughs> Another thing, I have no freedom. You know? <laughs> I wanted freedom in my life, my whole life I wanted to be free, and I got more and more and more and more lack of freedom. But it's, 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 a, it's, like, a, it's like many, one, two, nothing, then, but skin, then a muscle, bone, what's below bone, you know, organs, and organs for air and things. And, no, there's nothing. You never wind up with anything. Mentally, what? Oh, I hear my name and I respond. My mind has that name. And my mind feels angry. My mind feels happy. My mind feels attached. My mind feels like aversion. aversion you know? It, it, there, there's no landing. There's no place where any of that lands. Just like this morning's mind, this afternoon's mind, tonight's mind, tomorrow's mind, yesterday's mind. Uh, same thing goes with the body. My body was just one, uh, two, two little cells, I think. Yeah. One time. And, uh, maybe sometimes parents, they call their baby a name. When there's like half a dozen cells or something, you know? 
at least they say, baby. Or, you know. And then it just, it's basically, it, everything just kind of reiterates. It just, you know, we say it grows, but it doesn't grow. Each cell, I mean, cells are the same size. They just multiply. From microscopic, there's still microscopic parts that produce other microscopic parts. And then this illusion arises and everything kind of expands if you look at it from a distance. Or if you, the mother, you know, they feel, well, it's growing. But one cell at a time. There's no body that's growing. It's just an accumulation of microscopic pieces. Then comes out, then baby, this, cold, hot, nothing to say, and more and more crawling, walking. Body, there's nothing you can say that defines that body as being something that's always in motion. Even we're talking about the body now as if it's like, okay, now we have this body. It's, it's arrived at itself. I'm probably the oldest person in this room, and I tell you, it doesn't stop. You know, it's still it's still going. It never stopped. And okay, now we can say that we're a fully grown person. That's just other people's language. That's from the language of the truth. That, that's irrelevant. That's just an idea. It keeps going. Then. Even at the end, whatever that comes, which is uncertain, then either it goes into the earth or into the air, smoke, you know, burning, or into the sea, whatever. Body we can't claim as having some self-identity. Maybe I'm getting too, too, uh, too much detail on this point, but if we think that there is a spiritual path that will turn us into something that we wish we are, or that even we have a hunch that we could become something other than we are, then there's really, it's questionable what the basis for that assumption is. In Buddhist Buddhism, there's this expression called, uh, it's, it's not an expression, but it's, it's part of the, like a big part in Buddhism is, okay, you have a spiritual path. What's the idea behind your spiritual path? What's the idea behind it? Is it a sound? Everything we, everything we engage in should have a, a, a good, 
something behind, what's the idea behind it? For instance, and this is, uh, we always think this way. Like you, you, uh, you want to get a fan, it's hot, you hear about fan, oh, fan, that sounds like a good idea. Then you, uh, probably around here, you, you know, Google it, and then learn all about fans, and the price, and the output, and lifespan, all these things. Do I have the plugs? Is everything? You know, you you think it all out. You kind of do a little analysis. Best price, best uh, source. You, know, you source it, or, or find source. Uh, then you've 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 determined what you've done is you've determined the idea behind your path, which is going to be to put your little thing up on that little box and click it. That's a kind of a, normally, or not normally, but traditionally, you'd go somewhere and buy it. That would be your path. But the idea behind you going there was informed by an accurate understanding of what that path was going to yield what that path was going to result in. Like, maybe more, uh, like you have coffee and then you look and there's no milk. So, you're suffering. (laughs) Intensely. (laughs) And so you say, okay, what am I going to do about my suffering? And you go, okay, there's milk out there. That's my hunch, is that there's milk out there. And then, so you determine, okay, I'm going to go, I don't know where you go here, but well, you go right here someplace. Right? We're not that far out, but okay. You go there, you know, okay, this store I know from my personal direct experience, the wisdom of, that has arrived at, the wisdom that I have arrived at through my own direct personal experience, that I was in that store and they had milk in there. So I can infer from that that they'll have milk again. This is a picture of a cow, a contented-looking cow on the window of that place. So all indications are that if I enter the path to that place, that my goal of milk will be met and my suffering will be over. So the idea behind you leaving your coffee and going out on a non-coffee-with-milk-in-it path there's no coffee or milk or anything that even resembles that when you walk to the market to get your milk. So the path is quite different than the idea behind the path. When you get to the market and the milk is there, you've accomplished the idea behind the path. 
what was an idea validated by your intelligence, which includes your experience, your perception, all your, your faculties. The fruition of that path has accomplished the idea behind that path. Is that clear? Does that make sense? Does to me. Okay. So we have an idea of a spiritual spirituality. So it, I think my point is we, we need to uh, be sure that the idea behind what we think of as as a spiritual path, that the idea behind that has validity. And we can talk how to do that in a minute, but uh, because there's more to a spiritual path than just being on a spiritual path. The point of a path is to accomplish the idea behind the path. Just like you could just say, oh, I don't have any milk for my coffee today, and just start, just wander off, and just start, you go to the, you know, you go to the auto parts store, and you say, do you have milk? No. And then you go to the next place, you know, you go to the machine shop, or the dry cleaners, or something, do you have any milk? You know, and oh, I'm having such a great time today, going around. Uh, you know, just wandering around. Uh, but meanwhile, you know, you're suffering. This is an example. Don't stretch it. You know, don't confront me with it. It's just an example. <laughs> so in, uh, from a Buddhist uh, training point of view, this idea of really doing a, a, a having some understanding of the view is important. The view is what is what is the idea behind the path. Just like, oh, we meditate. So that's one aspect in the Dharma practice. It's meditation. And everybody's meditating these days. Very popular. Even the Air Force, Navy, Marines, they all can become much better uh, shooters and stuff if they meditate. But so the, the Buddhism, well, even Buddha didn't invent meditation. But he put a different idea behind why meditating. What is the point of having clarity? What is the point of having calm, a calm mind? What's the point of that? A calm mind, even the Buddha taught, the first kind of meditation practice is, is uh, abiding in uh, calmness, tranquility, meditation. He said, it's a very important to have this meditation, but it won't lead to freedom from suffering, it won't lead to enlightenment, it won't lead to Buddhahood. In fact, there's so many pitfalls connected with that kind of meditation that you, you need to get, we say, a kick, kick, kick in the butt to, to to stir yourself from that. Well, the point of meditation is to get insight. Insight. To get insight, we need to have some degree of calmness. 
so that you can see, just like uh, you know, like when a river gets very muddy, the erosion in a river, you know, you can't see the rocks and things in the river, like a lake. Wind blows, stirs up the current, and stirs stuff up from the bottom. So to be able to let that settle without tampering with it is important. But then to look and see, that's the point. That's where freedom comes from. Mm. So the idea behind that is important. So when we understand that, then we can understand how to, or what the purpose of bringing happiness and suffering onto that path is. Like, why be patient? Why be generous? These are supposedly qualities to cultivate on the spiritual path because of how it affects your mind. I'm not clear about time. Uh, what time are what time are you here for? And I see. And we don't have anything else happening today. So. Oh, that, yeah, but it was. Uh, so we have a little more time. Yeah, one to one thirty. Fifteen minutes. Yeah. Okay. I wonder if. Uh, or sorry, two thirty. Excuse me. I I should leave uh, one idea of how to bring happiness and suffering onto the path. Okay, is and again the idea behind the path. The, the Buddhist term is called view. It's not the view. What's the view? Like the view behind setting out to 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 uh, get milk. The view is okay. The street is there. The direction is that way. The money is this much. Uh, I have my tote bag, the right size, and they're open. I've done, that, that's the idea, that's the view of how you are going to accomplish the, the the fruition of that path, which is the milk. So one of view, and of course, the more accurate your view is, the less. Uh, I don't know, the less stress you'll have, the more confidence you'll have. Oh, well, I ask them, and they're open for another hour, and it only takes me three minutes to get there. So I'm confident. I don't have to, like, run screaming, panicking for my coffee milk, you know, to get there. So the more uh, accurate your understanding of why you would even be interested in a spiritual path, is 
which is a whole other topic, actually. Like, what's, why are you here? You know, you know why, there's a lot of things you could be doing today. Okay, another time. So you are here. So one, one uh, point that I, I could uh, reveal to you uh, as a way of um, enhancing your wisdom and compassion. Okay. And if we say, okay, spiritual path is just wisdom and compassion, how do we is to understand how everything is impermanent. And it's not just impermanent when it shows it, like when a cup breaks. Oh, it's impermanent. Two kinds of impermanence. Not two kinds of impermanence. Two ways to understand impermanence. Gross and subtle. When your cup breaks, that's gross impermanence. A cup is just sitting there, that's a subtle impermanence. Impermanence meaning there's molecules there, atoms. They're dynamic. They're not dead. You know, it looks like these like this is dead. You know, some solid dead thing. But it's 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 something that appears like a table. It appears as a table, but its its impermanence is uh, its nature right now. It's being impermanent now. Like that, because there, there, there are things moving, atoms, it's just science. We are not making this up. But it's significant to, to I mean, and, you know, and I'm sure, like, uh, your, your friends, you know, some tragedy strikes you, your, your cup breaks, or your, your couple flat tires, and, or your lover doesn't come home. And, or you lost your job, or you know something happens, and then you, if you have friends, and then they counsel you usually along the lines of, of how you'll get over it. Maybe not. Maybe they say, "Oh, well, you got to go after them," you know, drag them back or something, you know. Or, but basically, it's. Impermanence is sort of an emergency explanation for why uh, we feel distress when things don't go, when things grossly become impermanent. Uh, what I'm suggesting, or what the Dharma, what Buddha is suggesting, is like think about it all the time. Think about it in all circumstances really understand the truth, the relative truth of impermanence as much as you can.
think of the universe as impermanent. At one time, you know, we got we have our own current, you know, historical scientific or quasi-scientific explanation of how the universe began. And other cultures, other places, they have their own uh, uh, idea of how the universe begins, and and even you know our great great grandchildren or whatever next groups, they'll have even a more different, a little different idea of how the universe began and so forth. But the fact is, it doesn't matter basically, how the universe began. What matters is impermanence. At one time it wasn't, then it is, then there's a continuum, a, 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 a duration, and then there's a destruction, and then there's an end. It's impermanent. Everybody has an idea of the beginning of the universe, or some places they say the beginning of the world, which for us means the universe. Uh, but the, the, what, what's significant for your own personality, for your own psychology, is to understand that it's impermanent. And just really hang with just that. You can, it doesn't matter what system you subscribe to. You can have the universe sort of, you know, on the back of a turtle and this, or on a lotus petal. And it, the point is, the truth is, it's impermanent. In billions or trillions of years. And down to one second. One second, one nanosecond, one smaller and smaller and smaller, no matter how small we come to be able to perceive objects or time, there's always a beginning, a duration, and an end going to be there, which undermines its existence because it's made up of parts. Everything is made up of parts. That's its impermanence. As long as, like a Buddha said, Duje Tamche Mitak Pao means uh, all, anything that's composed is impermanent. The Buddha said, all composition, compositions are impermanent. So that. So even the smallest particle is still composed. Smallest amount of time is still composed. Time, I'm saying, is a subtle thing. It's like gross things and subtle things. Time is a subtle thing. Thoughts, they have a beginning, they have a duration, and they have an end. Emotions, they have a beginning, they have a duration, they have an end. So they're impermanent, they're unreliable, and they have no basis. They came about through 
interconnectedness, through interdependence. This idea impermanence in all its gross and subtle beauty. If you just become sort of a, a almost like a OC, like obsessive compulsive, not disorder, no D. Obsessive compulsive person about impermanence, you'll convert your entire presence, your entire being, to the truth. The truth. Impermanence is the truth of things. If if everything is a teaching on impermanence, then your wisdom of what's real and what's true will deepen. And your compassion, your loving kindness will uh, extend further and further. When you're sad, when something happens, you know, these tragedies happen, separation, loss, and so forth, if you have already known or you already have some understanding of impermanence, then as soon as you can recover yourself enough to be able to relate to that feeling in a creative way, spiritually, then you will immediately think of it as impermanence, and it will deepen your already present understanding of impermanence even more. Wow, I really didn't think impermanence applied to that. Like I could deal with one flat tire. One flat tire, you come out and go, oh yeah, why did I think that it wouldn't be flat? It's impermanent. It's just air. You let the air out and it's, it's flat. Air is nothing. You know, it could come out for any small reason. When you understand impermanence, then you're not all alarmed, like, wow, wow, wow. Flat tire, that's unjust. Like, you know, I'm going to call the police. There's a vandal. There's that. Somebody left a nail out. I'm going to complain. Like my neighbor's always doing it, you know. No, it's impermanent. So then you go, oh, I knew that. Now I really know it. Then two flat tires. That's tough because you don't have, only have one spare. And you have a job interview. Or you have to pick somebody up, you know. Or you have to get away from somebody, and you've got two flat tires, you know. <coughs> Already stayed too long somewhere, <laughs> and you go out, okay, whew, I'm finally away from that scene, and you have two flat tires. This impermanence will, you know, you always, you're feeding the truth. It's just the truth. It's not that you're in some fantasy world where everything's impermanent. And you're just gonna, you're living sort of a what do you call it, magical thinking that oh yeah everything's impermanent la di da di da. It's true. It's the one truth that you can validate from morning till night. 
in any circumstance. When you're happy, if you understand impermanence, you'll appreciate your happiness more. It's not that, I mean, the result of impermanence thinking is that you don't go, oh, it's just happiness, who cares, it's impermanent. That's not the way you go. That's not the natural course of things. If you really understand impermanence in some ways, then when happiness comes, you realize, wow, this is impermanent. I should, you know, there's an appreciation. This is going to end sometime, so I need to appreciate it now. There's a sunset coming. Then always, you know, there's this kind of edge to, to happiness, because you, you know that it's impermanent, don't you? I mean, everybody kind of knows it. If you're over, like, eight years old or something, maybe ten, I don't know. But, I mean, we know everything is impermanent. But we don't rely on that truth. There's this thing in the whole, our whole culture sort of introduces uh, this, all the, 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 the dregs of our culture uh, support the possibility of permanence. Psalms, I mean, photographs, everything is, not everything, but there's aspects of our culture, of every culture, that is counter-impermanence. Oh, well, don't think about impermanence about this. This will endure, and so you need to defend this. From destruction. So, impermanence is uh, is an invaluable tool to appreciate both suffering in a creative, deepening way. If you call that a spiritual path, fine. If you just call it your your uh, your own wisdom, your own capacity to know, and your own capacity to love, then impermanence will soften your edges, because you're impermanent too. And it will, the more you understand your own impermanence, it will uh, kind of soften the edges of your personality and your concepts, uh, so that your own natural inner kind of loving kindness has a way of escaping into the world, you know, and going out. You know, if you have relationships and you know they're impermanent, then you won't let things, you won't, how do we say, um, you won't harbor things. You know, they won't uh, drill into your sort of subconscious and like, well, again, the same thing happens, then that same memory comes out because you're holding on to it as some, in, this, in the sense of being permanent. Oh, that's just the way they are. You know? Much more open sense of relationships, more loving, more less anger, impermanence. I say, the more you understand impermanence, the less uh, anger 
comes. The more you understand impermanence, the less attachment you have. You can appreciate and love without this this uh, attachment. Attachment is this need to have something endure. Fixation. When Buddhism talks about suffering and the causes of suffering, the fundamental cause of suffering is fixation. Everything come down, can come down to fixation. And fixation is what? Fixation is uh, taking, or what do you say? Fixation is to, uh, I don't know about dictionary, this is just my own kind of trip of how I relate to words, you know. But fixation means holding something to be what it's not. Grasping onto something or thinking that something is what it's not. So it's a form of ignorance as to what something truly is. So when we understand through impermanence and other things, when we understand that things are not what they appear to be, but in this case, say, but they're impermanent, then our expectations will be less. Expectations meaning, oh, it's you and me forever, babe. I mean, we say that and maybe we don't, you know, like we're like maybe, I don't know, 60-40, you know, believing and knowing that it's not going to happen. But it would be much better if we, if we knew that it was impermanent. You know, it would be much more better communication, more honest communication, more valuable moments. So it works. Impermanence, and it's not just a a mind trick, you know. What I'm suggesting is you prove whether or not impermanence is true for things, for things. Things meaning also your thoughts and emotions. Like meditating on impermanence kind of means it's like a as much as you can do it kind of thing, not like sitting down. You can do that too, but all the time. Prove that things aren't permanent to yourself through conversations that you have with yourself, gossiping, you gossip to yourself about it, you know, just kind of talk to yourself about it. As if you were uh, trying to Convert yourself, like you're convert. What do you say? Convert. You know, like fundamentalist. You like a fundamentalist, an impermanence fundamentalist, where you're trying to convert your stubborn mind to what's true, which is that things are impermanent. 
we could say, oh, well, maybe some things are and some things aren't. Okay, that's all I'm saying. Check them out. Check it out. Where's the exception to that impermanence? If it's a thing, even if it's a very, 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 very subtle thing, like time, And if it's composed of parts, then it's not what it seems to be. It's other things. Material, body, floors, chairs, tables, cloth, they're all made up of other things than themselves. Like we have this where it's a floor, but there's no floor, it's actually wood. Where's the wood? Well, actually the wood is, uh, like, what do you call it, you know, strings of uh, fiber. Oh, what is a fiber? Oh, it's fiber, really, we mean little particles of, of cellular, cellulose, maybe something like that. Then what are those? Then? Down, 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 down. Infinity. You never come to a basis. You never come to that self-identity that a thing has. Labels are functional. Sweep the floor. Well, there is no floor. Like, that's that's an idiot. I mean, that's a fanatic, actually. That's a fanatic, a fanatical uh, nihilist. Says, well, there is no floor. Or they're just spinning things for their own laziness. (laughs) so labels function but to assume which we do we do we assume that those labels have something that they actually apply to that's the point That, that that delusion is undermined by understanding the impermanent nature of things. And just to cut off if you have questions about that, it's not that impermanence is some principle. You could say, oh, but isn't impermanence permanent then? Impermanence is... Plus, first of all, that that argument is just using... English language, in a in a in a way, it's, it doesn't prove anything. It doesn't say anything. But uh, the truth is that uh, impermanence is a a description of things. It's not that they have impermanence in them. So it's not a universal principle. Just to clarify. So don't get hung up on. Yeah, but what about impermanence itself? (laughs) It's just a description. An accurate description of a thing. What that reveals also is, just one more paragraph I have, realize I wanted to leave you with, is that 
what that means is impermanence and how everything is kind of interdependent and interconnected in this way. It means that, and I, I'm, I'm sorry to say, it, it means that nothing turns out to be reliable. When we understand that, from the point of view of how we understood it, that's a good thing. Not like, oh, you know, I'm just done with other people. You know, I'm just done with relationships. I just, you know, I just had it. You know, they just don't work. You know, not from that point of view. You know, but from the point of view of understanding that everything is just perfect in the way that it is but it isn't anything. It's impermanent, and it can't be relied on. In other words, it's like the river is full of water, but you, you can't really grasp it. Like a child, you know, the, the, the child, they, they have great fun out of grasping at a, a river, you know, or water. But water is incapable of being gra- held. You know, it lacks the qualities to be held. But we get into the habit of grasping at things that by their nature can't be held like other people, like jobs, like vehicles, like gardens. So we use things for our spiritual path, not hold on to them. It's like compost. Why would you make compost? To, to get rid of it. The only reason to have compost is to get rid of it. To use it. Put it into the soil. The same thing with what, suffering and happiness. If you have the methods, like even just thinking of impermanence, and there's other things too, but I think one of the most fundamental, uh, like the first kind of step on the, on the path in some sense is understanding impermanence. Uh, then you're just sort of composting in all your experience into your spiritual path. Good, bad, it doesn't matter, just like compost, it doesn't matter whether they're, you know, whether it's, you know, I don't even know it. Compost and so many years, I don't even remember it anymore. But, you know, coffee grounds or tea leaves, doesn't matter what's there. It all just turns out to be compost. The suffering, happiness, who cares? That's my interest is not in being happy or avoiding suffering. That's called worldly, by the way. And being worldly in that sense of wanting happiness and trying to avoid suffering. If that's your motivation, and that's called being worldly, from a Buddhist point of view, then that's not going to make you a very good participant in the world. If you learn to transform or compose all your suffering and happiness onto your spiritual path, spiritual path meaning, how can I make this suffering 
either my own suffering or what I read about or what's happening to my friends or whatever, is how can I make this deepen my wisdom, my knowledge, and my compassion, my loving kindness? How can I make that deepen that? How can I make this happy experience I'm having? How can I make that deepen my understanding of impermanence? How can I make it deepen my my loving my love and compassion, my generosity? How can I how can I how can I act? That's called the spiritual path. The worldly is how can I do this in such a way that I'll get praised? How can I do this in such a way that I won't be criticized? How can I do this to have more comfort? How can I do this to avoid being uncomfortable? How can I do this so I can become famous? I should do this so I won't become like a nobody. Obscure. We do things so we're not obscure. We do things so we don't get blamed. We do things that, that's all worldly. From the outside looking in, you're doing the same thing. But it's your spiritual life is becoming enriched by all these qualities that are being developed when you accept suffering, accept happiness, and have somewhere for it to go. And at this point, even just your understanding of impermanence, if you deepen your understanding of impermanence, and here you've been sitting here for this length of time, now your hips, your knees, your ankles are all suffering. It's impermanent. You can leave now. <laughs> this podcast is supported by the generosity and kindness of Chagdagumpa members and donors. If you're interested in becoming a member, making a donation, or if you want to learn more about Chagdagumpa, feel free to go to chagdagumpa.org.